Would you join me in your Bibles in Exodus chapter 4? Exodus chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 21 this morning. Last week we finished out the conversation between God and Moses, where they're meeting in the wilderness at the, at the burning bush. And now we move into some more action. So God has called Moses, and now Moses is, at least in theory, setting out to fulfill that call. Now, I'm going to say that, quite frankly, this is one of the most perplexing passages uh, of Scripture in the Bible. Certainly, uh, I would say this is probably the most difficult passage in the book of Exodus. And so we need to pay very close attention to the details of the text to understand what's going on. Uh, And we also need God's help. So let's pray for his help, and then we'll turn to the text. Father, your word is powerful. By your word, the demons are cast out. By your word, diseases are healed. By your word, our sins are forgiven. So, Father, we ask that you would soften our hearts to submit to your word. Conform us to your will. Conform us to your law. Teach us to rejoice in the promise of the gospel. Would you reveal those things to us this morning from your word? Would you reveal those things to us from the story of Moses? Would you let his life and and the words that he received from you uh, be light and life to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear God's word from Exodus chapter 4, starting in verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At the lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood. Because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. When they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, the Lord of the Lord stands forever. One of the giants of church history, a name you've probably heard is Augustine of Hippo, St. Augustine of Hippo. He was a pastor, he was a theologian. And there's, there's really a sense in which his, his theological fingerprints are over every Christian doctrine that we uh, hold to today. John Calvin once wrote that Augustine is so holy within me 
that if I wished to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. And he basically did just that. And if you look at the Institutes of the Christian Religion that Calvin wrote, he quotes Augustine about every fourth page. And it's not just Calvin. Every uh, Christian branch, every branch of the church for over a thousand years has, has lauded Augustine as a faithful interpreter of Scripture, an important father of the faith, and someone who is who's helpful in understanding God's will from the Scriptures. But Augustine wasn't always like that. In, in fact, he was a very well-educated pagan for most of his life, even though his mother was a faithful Christian who had raised him uh, that way. He was involved in several pagan cults, and he was known to live a licentious and promiscuous lifestyle in the various places that he lived around the Mediterranean. All against his mother's Christian advice. But somewhere along the way, he realized his own sin. And there's an interesting story of his childhood that one time he was uh, with some friends. He was a teenager. And they snuck into an orchard and stole some pears. But as he got older, that sin started to bother him because he said, we stole not because we wanted the pears, but because we were just sinful. We just wanted to steal something. And that event stuck with him. By the time he was an adult, all of his sins were piling on him. He was said to have been stricken with intense anxiety because he had developed a deep understanding of just how bad and sinful he was. But he didn't have a solution. And that's when he encountered Christ. That's when he encountered the gospel. The rest is history. Each person, our experience of salvation is unique in a lot of ways. But there are recognizable patterns that we see in people's lives. There are recognizable patterns that we see repeated in people. And today, we're going to see what I'm, I'm calling this Moses conversion experience. You see a, a major change in Moses', Moses life after this event. Because at the end of chapter 4, Moses is finally ready to let go. He's finally ready to take hold of God's promises. He's finally ready to follow him. And the pattern is very similar to Augustine's. The pattern is this. Promise, Passover, and praise. Promise, Passover, and praise. First, we receive promises from God. And we may halfway accept it. We may put one foot in. But then we confront our sin and our need for a Savior and have our own Passover experience. And finally, that Passover experience drives us to worship and to praise of God. Promise, Passover, and praise. Now, before we get into the, the text itself, I do want to say something about the nature of biblical interpretation, because we're about to deal with a, what's a really difficult passage. It, there are a lot of passages in the Bible like this, and so we need to think about how to approach them. Um, you're going to run across things like this in your personal study, in your family study, or your small group Bible studies. And so I just kind of want to lean on some principles that we get in the Western Confession of Faith to give you just two words of encouragement, and then I hope to model these things for you. So first, it's okay if you don't understand something. Uh, Western Confession of Faith 1.7 says, All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned and a due use of the ordinary means may attain into a sufficient understanding of them. In other words, if there's something in the Bible you don't understand, that's okay. There's nothing wrong with you. The Bible is a big book. The Bible is written in other languages. And sometimes it is hard to understand. Peter says that himself in Second Peter. But a lot of the time, the Bible is very clear. And the Bible is sufficient for faith and for life, whether you're a Hebrew scholar 
or just a child learning to read. So don't, don't be frightened by these texts. Sometimes they're, they're gonna, you're going to struggle with them, but know that you have enough of the Bible for faith and life. Second, uh, clear texts interpret unclear texts. So this is Confession of Faith 1.9. It says, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. And so whenever the Bible is unclear, or when there's something that you don't understand, the first place we go is not commentaries, not the internet, but the Bible itself. Now, commentaries in Google can help with this process, and if you're reading a good commentary or uh, finding a good resource, it'll actually point you back to the Bible. But whenever there's a question of meaning, the best answer is always the one that relies on the text of Scripture itself. So you should probably be a little bit suspicious of anyone who says... To really understand the Bible, you need some outside source, you need some historical data, some cultural data. That stuff is helpful, but you don't need that. You only need the infallible authority of Scripture. So my my hope today is to model that for you as we look at this very, very difficult passage. And so as we're studying this passage, be be thinking about how you might deal with similar passages in your personal life, in your small group Bible studies, in your family Bible studies. So let's, let's dig in, starting in verse 21, looking at the promise of God. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do not, that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So just to give you a little bit of context to think back to last week, the verses immediately before this, up to this point, you have a little bit of a back and forth. So in chapter 3, and through the beginning of verse 4 through verse 17, you have this call from God that Moses gets. Then in verse 18, Moses goes back and gets Jethro's permission to leave. Now he actually doesn't leave at this point, because God comes to him again in Midian, And tells him with assurance that he's not going to die. It's okay, you can go back to Egypt. And then in verse 20, we get a little bit more action before we get this promise from God. So reading between the lines just a little bit, what, what, what we see here is that Moses is probably kind of hanging back. He's a little bit reluctant. He's not sure he wants to go. And it's interesting that the promise we get in these verses, in verses 21 through 23, is essentially the same promise at the end of chapter 3. But there's this additional promise about the hardening of Pharaoh and the death of the firstborn. We'll get to the the details of of the hardening and the the death of the firstborn later on. But it seems like in in response to Moses' continued hesitancy, God is giving giving him just a little bit more, a little extra nugget of information to work off of. Another extra promise for the covenant, the coming redemption. But it's also interesting that this is the first time in Scripture that God refers to Israel as his firstborn son. That's a powerful statement because Israel is an oppressed people. They're not being saved just because they need it. They certainly do need it. No, they're being saved because ultimately they belong to God. Jesus talks about this at length in John chapter 10. Just a snippet of what he says in John 10. He says, you do not believe because you were not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. 
In other words, when God sets out to save, he sets out to save those who belong to him. He makes this clear over and over again through a number of illustrations throughout the Gospel of John in particular. When God saves, it's not like God is, is casting out a line to see if he gets a bite. Just sitting on the, on the pier watching his bobber. No, Christ actually comes to save people. He sets out to save you. And if he wants to save you, he's going to succeed. That's the nature of redemption. And so that's why God saved Israel from Pharaoh. You'll remember that Pharaoh is a picture of the serpent himself. He's, he's playing out this, this Genesis narrative. And so God saved Israel because Israel was his to begin with. Israel does not belong to Pharaoh. They belong to God. And so he continues to save the church, which is the heir of Israel's promises today. So the question for you is whether you believe those promises. Do you believe that God's wrath is real? Do you believe that Christ is able to turn away that wrath? Do you believe that he is able to raise you even from the dead? These are the promises that we have in Christ. Moses was called to believe these promises with God. Israel and Pharaoh were called to believe these promises of God. And so are we. And your trust, your belief in the promises, your trust in the promises will have a profound impact on your experience of Passover. Look at verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched his feet with it and said, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Now, there's a Bible teacher that I listen to on occasion. And he says that the Old Testament can be divided into two sections, two parts, the weird and the deeper weird. And so if, the, if that's true, then what we're dealing with right now is the deeper weird. There are lots of, of little perplexities in this passage. So first, at the word level, you may notice that Moses is never directly mentioned in this passage. If Moses' name appears in your Bible translation in verses 24 through 26, that's, that's the translators attempting to kind of make sense of this, to make it make sense in English, make it a little bit more readable. And so this presents two questions. I'll give you what I think the answer are to these questions, but I, I'm not dogmatic about this. So the first question is, who is God seeking to kill? Either he is seeking to kill Moses or Moses' son. I think it's probably Moses. So the second question is, whose feet does Zipporah throw the blood on? Again, it's either Moses or his son. My answer is that I don't really know who that happened to. I haven't been thoroughly convinced either way, but if you made me pick, I'd probably say that it's Moses. Now, those questions are important to think about, but we don't need to miss the forest for the trees here. The precise logistical details of how this works out, we know that God is seeking to kill someone, and that the circumcision of Moses' son stops that killing and I think with those two facts, we can make a good start at understanding what's going on. So first, you'll notice that Moses and his family are staying at a lodging place. The King James Version calls it, calls it an inn. In other words, it looks like Moses is kind of hanging around this place. It's probably not a quick camp for the night. right? There's, he's, he's not just set up a fire in a tent and he's going to pick up in the morning. No, he's, he's, he's hanging out at a lodging place. And it looks like, just as he was delaying in Midian, he's delaying again. So why does God seek to kill Moses? Well, at one level, this whole event is provoked by the fact that Moses' son is uncircumcised. And we know from Genesis 17, that's a requirement. As descendants of Abraham, all the boys in his family are supposed to undergo this circumcision. They're supposed to undergo the sign of the covenant. 
the sign that the boy belongs to God. But this also points us to a deeper level. That Moses was supposed to tell Pharaoh to let Israel go. But Moses himself had not yet let his son go. He had not let his family go. He hadn't given himself over to the mission of God. He's, he's quite literally committing the sin of Pharaoh, the same sin. You think about the parallels. We've got, we haven't gotten to the story of the plagues, but you're probably familiar with at least the broad strokes of that. Pharaoh received numerous signs, numerous plagues, that he ought to re- release Israel. But it takes a crisis event, the, the death of his firstborn son, to actually do it. In the same way, Moses has received signs, some of the same signs, in fact, that Pharaoh will receive. God also spoke to him directly out of a burning bush. But for, for some reason, he's still not quite willing to give himself over to God's will. He won't let go of his own fear of Egypt. And so God comes to kill him. What happens next is that Zipporah, Moses' wife, circumcises their son and literally wipes blood on Moses' feet. That, by the way, is the same terminology that's used to describe how the Israelites put blood on their doorposts during the Passover. And so Moses, in other words, is having his own little Passover, his own little blood atonement. The circumcision is a sign that everything Moses and Zipporah have belongs to God. It's the last thing that they need to give up. And so now, Zipporah, who's clearly not happy about this whole situation, circumcises her son, atones for her husband, and now they're trusting him. I can't help but think that in that moment, that Moses really understood his sinfulness. He really understood that the situation was dire. At the burning bush, he wasn't wasn't threatened by death, but all of a sudden, he's in danger. But that's something that people, so many people, fail to understand. We really are sinners. And that's that's no small thing. We are sinners, and we need a Passover as well. We need to be covered by the atoning blood of Christ. For Moses, that was the blood of his son. Later we'll see the blood of the Passover lamb, but ultimately we need Christ's blood to cover us. And that requires that we humble ourselves, that we let go of ourselves. Of our own accord, that's not a possibility, but God's grace is able to humble us. To make us bow before him. So are you covered in Christ's blood? Do you understand your sin and misery? Have you submitted that sin before Christ? If not, your call today is to turn to him in faith. To actually experience a Passover for yourself. Trust in Christ and he will surely save you from death. Just as he saved Moses. Just as he saved the firstborn of Israel. So we had promise. Passover and third, praise. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord, which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel that he had seen their affliction, had bowed their heads, and worshipped. And so this is a really abrupt transition. We, we go from this really dark, scary, violent event, we find ourselves in a new situation. In fact, there's a sense in which 
You really could have skipped the circumcision story in verses 24 through 26, and you wouldn't have noticed. It, it seems almost out of place. But there's a reason that all this goes together. There's a reason it's all there. If you're familiar with Genesis, we talked about this a little bit this morning. You may remember this, this odd little story about how Jacob wrestles with God. Jacob is preparing to meet his brother, which Moses is preparing to meet Aaron. He's preparing to return to his people. Moses is preparing to return to his people. And so God meets Jacob on the far side of the Jabbok River in this crisis event. And only after wrestling with God and ultimately losing, does, does Jacob go and meet his brother Esau. If you want an interesting Bible study, you might want to consider all the many parallels between Jacob and Moses. That'd be an interesting thing to do. But for now, it's enough to note that both of these men were reluctant, were unsure, had serious problems until they met God in these crisis events. Jacob was exiled from his people, but after he wrestles with God, you see at the end of chapter 33 of Genesis, he builds an altar. This rebellious young man who had run from his people, who had been exiled, all of a sudden is worshiping God. Back in Exodus 4, we see a similar pattern. Moses has a crisis encounter with God. But when he returns to his people, he leads the people in praise of God. You probably know people who have had this kind of experience. Maybe it's been your own experience. A lot of people grow up going to church, grow up doing the Christian thing, but they never put both feet in. They'll keep a little bit out in the world. They do this halfway Christianity thing. But when crisis hits, when challenge comes, that all changes. When, the li- when their lives or the lives of someone they love is in danger, when their marriage is in trouble, when the money gets tight, all of a sudden they understand their need. It's in these situations that we suddenly understand how small we are. Frederick Buckner calls this kind of thing a magnificent defeat of the human soul at the hands of God. And that's ultimately what worship is. It's submission. It's giving up. So this is what is produced by the promise of God and the crisis of Moses. It's praise. It's worship. God is certainly praiseworthy just by his own nature, by who he is. But the reason that we praise him, the reason given in Scripture over and over again, is always the mighty works of salvation that he performs. Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for us. The Lord has made known our salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. If your salvation, which is a mighty work of God, does not drive you to praise, I would encourage you to do a little bit of self-reflection. Praise is not optional. It is the necessary response to the gospel of grace. So a soul that is saved is a soul that loves worship. Is that you? Do you delight in the worship of God? Do you delight to be with his people? Do you delight to hear his word, whether that's here in public or in private? If you do, I I would encourage you to cultivate those delights. To, To continue to delight, continue to praise. These are things that we ought to feed so they can flourish in our lives. But if, if you don't delight in those things, God's mercy is more. And so your call is to, to repent of your lack of worship. Ask him to change your heart. 
And as he extends his mercy and his grace to you in this way, then you too will, will find your soul singing in praise of him. Promise, Passover, and ultimately praise. We began with Augustine's conversion story. And, um, I, I want to end with this, with this quote from him where he's, just, he's talking about this event, this conversion event that he had. This is his prayer to God. He says, Belatedly, I loved you. O beauty, so ancient and so new, belatedly, I loved you. For see, you were within, and I was without, and I sought you out there. Unlovely, I rushed heedlessly among the lovely things that you have made. You were with me, but I was not with you. These things kept me far from you, even though they were not at all unless they were in you. You called and cried aloud and forced open my deafness. You gleamed and shined and chased away my blindness. You breathed fragrant odors, and I drew breath in my mouth. And now I pant for you. I tasted, and now I hunger and thirst. Augustine, the story of his life is that he sought joy everywhere but in Christ. Moses sought joy, he sought peace, he sought safety in Midian. But when the light of Christ shines on us, when we're covered with the blood of Christ, when he actually brings us before the throne, all those things pass away. Do you believe God's promises? Do you trust in the atoning blood of Christ? Do you love to lift up his praises? This is your call today, to trust in him, trust in his Passover and his promises, and to praise his name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.